Amen. Well, good morning. I want to add my welcome to those of you who are new here today. My name is Alex. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Chatham Community Church, and we are thrilled if you're joining us here. For the very first time, whether you're in person or online, what we're all about is connecting, connecting people to God, connecting people to each other. So together we can engage our world for good. We hope you experience a little bit of all those things here this morning. Uh, this is week two of a new series called Age to Age. If you are just joining us, we're tackling two problems in the course of the series. The first problem can be described thusly that uh, our understanding of the Old Testament is like a disorganized, chaotic closet. Even if you've been a church person your whole life, you've got like vague stories of like David and Goliath and Jonah and Moses and the Red Sea, but you don't know how any of it all fits together. And so part of our goal over the course of these next few weeks is to sort of take the closet of the Old Testament and bring organization to it. That is to set the timeline in its right place so you understand how the Old Testament all fits together. And the reason why we're doing this, partly just so we can understand how the scriptures work, but also because everyone in the New Testament loves the Old Testament. And they're all telling the story of Jesus as the fulfillment of all the things that have gone before. And so if we don't really understand what's going on in the Old Testament, we're never going to fully understand Jesus and how he gets talked about throughout the course of the New Testament. So that's goal number one, to bring order to your disordered Old Testament closet. Some of you love a good closet that's organized. Some of you could care less about an organized closet, but we're going to hopefully give you that gift regardless. Now, goal number two of this whole series is this, to replace sort of that picture of the angry Old Testament God with a God who is faithful age to age. Because a lot of us have this picture of God uh, as being kind of angry or wrathful throughout the course of the Old Testament. And there's nice Jesus who comes along later to kind of tidy things up. But what we're going to see throughout the, 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 the study of the Old Testament is the same God who shows up through Jesus in Jesus is there from, ba- from page one, from day one. We're going to kind of bring these things together as best we possibly can to show the same God who is faithful age to Age. Now, to help us with this, there's a prop, a little a, a bookmark that's going to strewn throughout. If you were here last week, you got one of these. If you didn't get one of these last week, feel free to grab one of these. This is a timeline of the Old Testament story of Israel. And this is for you to take home, and it's trying to bring order to some of that chaos about our understanding of the Old Testament. This is from some uh, friends of ours in university. That was the organization, the campus ministry that I worked for and Jaime worked for uh, for many years. And basically, this is just an outline of the whole Old Testament, all the major events uh, across the, uh, the middle of it in the bottom there's some more markers and uh someone asked me uh so alex how long is this series gonna be are we gonna be in are we gonna do tour stuff we're only doing five weeks in this right so we're covering all this in five weeks so don't stress okay i promise we're not gonna squat we're not gonna suffocate you with old testament but what we want to do is we want to help us to understand all these things and then and last week we kicked it off the very beginning with the call of abram that's happening in genesis so across the top there is space for you to write down the books of the Bible that happened in that period of time. And so what we're going to do throughout the course of this series, every week I'm going to tell you where the, where the books are and how they fit in with this timeline. Okay, so last week we started in Genesis and we looked at the story of Abram. And in Genesis 12, he gets a call from God and God says, hey, I want to make you a great family and a great nation and through you I'm going to bless all people. And as the story of Genesis continues to unfold, there's, uh, there's a, a big family of 12 brothers. And in that family of 12 brothers, throughout the course of Genesis, things go a little sideways. A bunch of those brothers sell one of their brothers, Joseph, into slavery in Egypt. 
And then by the grace of God, Joseph rises up to basically be prime minister over all of Egypt. And God gives him a word, hey, there's going to be a famine throughout the whole Middle East. Time to stockpile grain. So throughout the course of Genesis, Joseph is stockpiling grain and then the famine hits. And then his brothers are suffering under the famine way far away. They come to Egypt. They don't recognize Joseph. There's a lot of family drama. If you have family drama, read the last half of Genesis. You'll feel right at home. There's a lot of family drama, there's dramatic events, but eventually Joseph and his brothers are reconciled, he forgives them, and they're made safe in the midst of this famine. And Genesis ends with them camping out in Egypt, safe and sound. But then we turn to Exodus, and a new king comes to power, and Joseph dies, and he looks around, and he sees his family has gotten huge. And he says, hey, if there's a war, they might rebel against us. And so at the beginning of Exodus, he enslaves all these people, this whole family of Joseph, the family of Abram, the promised family and they're growing and growing and growing and the whole story of exodus is basically the 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 story the first half is the people crying out to god for deliverance from slavery in egypt and god raises up moses and he sends him to sort of send plagues and deliver the people from egypt and eventually they, they do they're released out of Egypt, and the dramatic, most dramatic moment is the parting of the Red Sea there in the Exodus, as the people walk across on dry land, and Pharaoh's army drowns in the Red Sea, and then they're set free. And so today we're picking up the story in Exodus as they get the Ten Commandments. So here we are, uh, as, we, as we hit the, back to the timeline, here's the books of the Bible that are written during this period. Actually, Genesis describes what happens before this period, but it, it, traditionally it's understood that Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, those first five books of the Bible, were all written as the people were in the wilderness under Moses's sort of auspices. He supervised it. He, uh, he helped make it happen. So all the, all the first five books of the Bible are written during this period of time as they are wandering from, the de- from Egypt through the desert toward the promised land. They spend 40 years doing this, okay? So this is all captured during this period of time as we get to the Exodus. And as we get to Exodus chapter 20, we're picking up as they get the Ten Commandments, which is a major moment for both the people of Israel and for all of biblical history. Now, so today we're talking about the rules. Let's talk about the rules, shall we? Some of you love the rules. Some of you are rule nerds. You're rule followers. If everyone just followed the rules, it would all be a much better place, amen? The world would be a much better place. If everyone just followed the rules. Some of you are like, yes, rules. Let's get them. That's fantastic. Others of you, not so much. Some of you see a rule and you can't wait to break it. Like, you love it when you're driving down the road and there's that big sign with the speed limit and the radar that shows you your speed. And if you go too fast, it blinks at you and yells at you with lights and buzzes. And you're like, yes, let's trip that baby. Please tell me I'm breaking the rules. Brings joy to my heart, right? Some of us, today we're talking about the rules. Some of us love the rules, some of us hate the rules, and some of us, more importantly, grew up in a religious context where it was only but the rules, only the rules. That's all that matters, all anyone talked about. And when you make a faith all about the rules and all about what you do, it's suffocating. It's exhausting. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But when we understand how the rules fit in to the larger thing that God has been doing, both in Israel's history and in our own story and in Jesus' story, we understand it's a gift of grace. The same God faithful from age to age when the rules are fit in the right spot. And we learn what they mean. To, to live in those as a gift of grace so that we might flourish. Today we're looking at the rules. Exodus 20. We're going to pick back up on verse uh, 1. Let's just reread those first couple verses to start with. Here's how Exodus 20 verses 1 and 2 kicks off. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land 
of slavery. A couple years ago, my, my brother made a big jump, a midlife, mid-career jump. He, uh, he went to PA school, physician assistant school. That's who you see when you go to like a walk-in clinic. So he's been going to school and going to school and going to school, and it's been a, a grind, and he's in his last set of rotations before he actually gets a paid job to do this work. But about a year ago, he was driving home from his long day at, the, at PA school, and there was, an a, there was an accident, a car accident, and there were injuries. And he pulled over and stopped, and I've never seen someone so excited to describe someone who had injuries before. He's like, I get to use all the stuff I've been studying. I've been going to school for like years and years. I finally get to use this. And so he was so geeked out to talk about this person's injuries. Now, as he was describing to me what he did at the scene of the accident, here's what he did not do. He did not stop and ask, whose fault is this accident? He didn't say, hey, was everyone wearing the seatbelt? He didn't make them sign an affidavit saying, I won't speed anymore before he saved them or helped them. All that stuff would matter eventually, but the, the rescue, the, 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 the helping, that came first. And then the rules and kind of who was at fault and all that kind of stuff, that would come second. The writer of Exodus says that the people of, uh, of Israel have been in Egypt for hundreds of years. And when God moves to deliver them from Egypt, to raise up Moses, to rescue them from Egypt, it's really important to note what he does not do. Here's what God does not do. God does not show up and give Moses the Ten Commandments before he rescues them from Egypt and says, give them these Ten Commandments, and if everyone follows these rules for a whole year, then I'll deliver them. Right? The commandments don't come in Egypt as a precondition for rescue. The commandments don't come to the people while they're still in Egypt, and God says, okay, follow these for a year, or for a month, or for a week, or for a day. Get all these right for one day, check all these boxes, and then I will rescue you. Then salvation will come. It's not what happens at all. And as God opens up the Ten Commandments, as God introduces the Ten Commandments, he wants to remind them that this whole thing is happening in a certain order, of, certain, uh, certain order of operations. I am the Lord your God who has already brought you out of Egypt and who has already brought you out of the land of slavery. Now, after all those things have already happened, therefore, on the other side of that, you shall or shall not do a whole bunch of things. But here's the good news, and here's where so much religion gets it all wrong. Salvation comes first. The commands come after. Grace comes first. The law comes after. The, the, the demonstrated love of God, expressed in any number of ways, gets poured out on us first. And then we are given the rules of the house to follow. So God says, now that I've rescued you, now that I've delivered you out of Egypt, now I'm going to give you really wise laws that you might live rightly, that you might know how to be a nation. Remember, they've never been a nation before. They were just a big family prior to going to Egypt. It's been hundreds of years in Egypt. And God says, well, listen, I'm going to help you to be a good nation, a, 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 a functional, healthy nation, that you might be a light to all the nations. I'm going to show you all that after you've experienced my rescue. Now, we're going to talk about that all in a little bit, but here's where, I, here's where I see Christians get it wrong on the regular. Sometimes, and this is us religious people, right? So I'm talking to those of us who are really religious. Sometimes we expect people who don't yet know God's salvation to follow the rules. Sometimes we expect people 
who don't love God's grace, haven't experienced God's grace, aren't living with their lives, celebrating God's salvation, and we expect them to know God's commands and follow and love God's commands. Now, don't get me wrong, God's commands are good and wise, and the closer our lives align with God's law and God's rules, it is better for us and for all those around us. But sometimes Christians put expectations on people that haven't experienced God's salvation and say, why aren't you following God's rules? Or maybe one point they expressed some faith interest many, many years ago, but there's nothing, their lives reflect nothing like they are trusting in God, delighting in salvation. So here's a word to those of us who are, who are God people, who are Jesus people, who, who know and love God and know and love these rules. Don't expect people who aren't delighting in the salvation of God to obey the commands of God. Why would they? It's only after the people of, of Israel have known and experienced the love of God. They've seen him demonstrate his commitment to them. They know his character now. They understand who he is now. It's only after they've experienced and know the love and, and the grace of God, only then do they then trust God to say, okay, tell us now how to live. Now that we see how much you love us, now that we see how powerful you are, now we're open to you telling us how we should live faithfully. That's, so, so how God operates in the Old Testament is he rescues his people, he saves his people, then he gives them the law. Same thing happens in the New Testament. Fast forward a couple thousand years. God doesn't show up, I don't know, 50 years before Jesus is born and say, if you follow these rules, then I'll send my son to save you from sin and death. God doesn't show up. There's no preconditions to Jesus' salvation. God just shows up. Brings salvation, brings rescue, saves the world, saves us from sin and death. And then after the salvation has been secured, after the rescue plan has been in operation, then the call to everyone, repent, believe the good news, and walk in the way of Jesus. Like, God doesn't show up and drop the Sermon on the Mount five years before Jesus and say, do these things first, and then Jesus comes. The rescue comes first. Salvation comes first. And then the rules of the house come second. You're adopted into God's family first. You're brought into God's family first. You are seeing the goodness and the love of God the Father first. And then after you know the love of God the Father, then the Father says, now that you're in my house, now that you're a child of God, here's the rules of the house. Here's what it means to be salt and light, to live as a distinctive people. And it's so easy to get this all mixed up. And so uh, I want to invite us to ask this question, especially us religious people. Salvation comes first. Commands come after. Are you mixing the order up in any way, shape, or form, either for yourself or for others? Salvation comes first. Grace comes first. The commands, the rules come second. If you mix those up for other people, you, become, you come across as one of those judgy religious people, right? Like, you start judging all those people for not doing the things you think they should be doing because here's God's law and here's God's rules, but they don't know that God and they don't know, they might not even know his rules. So we don't expect someone who's not a part of God's family to act as if they're already in God's family. That's not how it works. So we don't judge other people by God's law. We try to faithfully walk it in ourselves. And then for ourselves, oh my goodness, if you kind of live under, as if sort of the law and the rules come first and then God's love for you comes after, it's exhausting. I remember I, was, I went through a long period of time where I was struggling with this. Where I was like trying to be a good religious person, trying to be faithful, trying to do all the right things, trying to do all the right things. And man, eventually I was like, this is exhausting. I hate this. Like I knew that Jesus was good and I knew that Christianity was good. And I, think, I was like, I think this is true, but I'm exhausted by it. I felt suffocated by it. Like all these rules, all these rules. And I felt like I had to do the rules right for God to like me, for God to love me, for me to get the salvation and the grace that I wanted, for me to experience the blessing of God. I had to do all the things just so. And I still remember where I was when I read in the scriptures that this beautiful passage 
that there was no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because I felt so condemned all the time. I was always falling short, always falling short, never doing enough, never doing enough. And when I read the good news that there was no condemnation for those who are already in Christ Jesus because his grace and his mercy and his salvation was extended to me before I did anything right or wrong. Grace came first. Salvation came first. The rules, that came second. I didn't have to earn that salvation, earn that grace. The grace was already coming at me. I was just invited to live into it. My friends, are, is there any place in your life, any place spiritually where you feel like I'm getting kind of things mixed up where I'm forgetting that salvation comes first and the rules come second and where you get kind of hung up, especially those of us who are rule followers? Are, are there places in your life where you're getting hung up either for yourself or for other people, forgetting that the grace of God and salvation of God comes first? So it's really important to see how God frames all this up, right? The first couple sentences, God says, here's what I'm doing. I'm the one that brought you out of Egypt. I'm the one who brought you out of slavery. This is my character, my identity. You've seen how much I love you. And, and remember, they're, they're getting instructions now from the God that they barely know. There's no scripture written down for the entire 500 years before this, right? 500 years before this, roughly, God appeared to the great, great, great grandfather Abram. And he made this crazy promise, through you and your family, all nations are going to be blessed. And then they live in Egypt for 400 years, roughly, and there's like, they have no written scriptures. All they see around them are the Egyptian gods and the way those gods manifested and worked themselves out. And all the ways that people kind of did the stuff to keep the Egyptian gods happy. That's all they know and all they see. And so far as we know, there weren't any rituals, there's no religious practices that the people of Israel had in Egypt to anchor them in the story of Abram. And maybe some of them worshipped the Egyptian gods because that was all in front of them. But we know somehow some of them... Held on to the crazy story that God appeared to their great-great-great-grandfather, Abram. That through this family, God was going to make a great nation that was going to bless all peoples. And so what you get in the Ten Commandments is you get four commandments about God to correct or deal with sort of what they saw in Egypt. I know what you saw in Egypt. You saw all these gods. You saw all these practices. Don't do that. And then you get six commands about how to relate to one another that were also different from the Egyptian people, right? The Egyptians had their own rules about and their own culture, how they treat each other. How did men and women treat each other? How do you treat the foreigner or the slave? They had all this culture. And so there's six commandments where God's correcting what they saw in Egypt in terms of how they relate to one another, and we can't talk about all Ten Commandments. Now maybe that'll be a ten-week series some other time down the road. But the first one is so, so critical. And it all starts with this one. You shall have no other gods before me. So uh, my last name is Kirk, K-I-R-K. And so, of course, my family, especially my dad, obligated to be Star Trek fans. Just how it has to be. Star Trek fans, right? Now, my grandparents were missionaries in Brazil for 40 years. And there's a Brazilian tradition where all the boys and the men get named the same first name. So my grandfather is actually James Kirk. And he had two boys. Uh, my dad, James Robert Kirk, and my uncle, James Thomas Kirk. James T. Kirk. Not Tiberius, but still pretty cool, right? James T. Kirk. There it is. Uh, my, my brother, I'm James Alexander Kirk. We're all like James Kirks all throughout, right? So, again, so we are morally obligated to be Star Trek fans. Now, we're not like over the top. I've never been to a Star Trek convention, I promise, okay? Like, not quite that bad. But we enjoyed the show. And in the world of Star Trek, there's this plot, there's a sort of a thread line that goes through it called the Prime Directive. As they, as they boldly go where no one has gone before, no man has gone before, that was the original one, right? Where no man's gone before, they come, in, they come in contact with alien species, and the Prime Directive is this. They're not to introduce, like, future technology that the aliens don't already have. 
does not interfere with kind of the alien life and, and where things are. That's the prime directive. And there's multiple, multiple sort of plots and stories or episodes where that's a, that's a thing that they're wrestling with. The prime directive then becomes sort of a, a thing that comes up in multiple TV shows. It even comes up in businesses and nonprofits. That here's our prime directive. If we violate this, we've lost our reason for being. If we violate this thing, then we've lost the plot. We've lost kind of, we've, we've violated kind of who we are as our core premise. The command, you shall have no other gods before me, this is the prime directive. This is Israel's prime directive. After the rescue, after salvation, it is the thing that God says, you shall have no other gods before me. They had just left Egypt, all these other gods, right? All kinds of gods. And they were rank ordered by kind of their supremacy. In fact, the plagues that God sends to Egypt were likely taking out gods one by one. The next to last plague that God sends in Egypt, he blots out the sun. The sun god, Ray, in the Egyptian hierarchy was the top dog. He was like the alpha, alpha god of all of them. And God says, Ray is no big deal in blotting out that sun. And so these people of Israel had just seen all these gods being witnessed by the Egyptians, but they'd just seen them all be disarmed by God, the, the God they're worshiping over and over and over again. There's these ten plagues where God just disarms these gods. And in fact, it's not just the Egyptians, all the, all the people around them, all the cultures around them have all these other gods. And God says, listen, I know that all around you, you are swimming in gods. All these nations have all these gods. Here's what's going to be different about you. You're going to have one God. No other God before me. No other God beside me. You can see that sometimes it gets translated beside or alongside me. No other God exists. You're going to be different and distinctive. And one theologian, one ancient theologian described it this way, that any time we break any of the Ten Commandments, we're just breaking this commandment. Any time we break any of the Ten Commandments, we're breaking the commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Right, so let's take, let's take the Sabbath, right? God, God says one of the commandments is, honor the Sabbath, take a break, rest. It's a holy day. Some of us can't stop, won't stop, because work is our God. That is before the God of the universe. If work is what gives you your value, identity, and your purpose, then you're not going to take a day off. It's impossible. And so you've made your work your God. You've got another God before the God of the universe that's trying to, that you're trying to suck life out of. You're trying to get your identity, your value, your worth, your purpose, your meaning, your significance out of a job. And if a job is your God, then you can't take a Sabbath off. If you violate the Sabbath, you're not taking a rest day, then that's indicative that you've got some other God before the God who has saved you. Don't steal. Why do you steal? Well, you want something someone else has or, or you're in need. And you're trying to grab for control and make sure that you get taken care of. Anytime we steal, it's because we made a God out of someone else's stuff. Or we made a God out of me grabbing for control to make sure I'm taken care of. And so God says, no, no other gods before me. Every other commandment is just an expression of this commandment. Anytime we break any of the other commandments, it's breaking this primary commandment, this prime directive commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And this commandment comes to you and to me thousands of years later, and here's the deal. We have the exact same problem the people of Israel had. All around us, dozens of gods, hundreds of gods, all kinds of people worshiping all kinds of gods. Gods of comfort and convenience, gods of money and status and reputation, gods of control, gods of like 
people's approval and applause, gods of politics, gods of just leave me alone and super independence, let me just do whatever I want to do. All these gods that the people all around us are worshiping. And God comes to you and to me this morning and says, listen, I know that you're in a sea of people worshiping dozens of other gods. Here's what I'm telling you, no other god before me. No other God before me, no other God beside me. And that call comes to all of us no matter where you are spiritually. Some of you are here this morning and this isn't really how you roll. Like this God and Jesus and the God stuff. Like maybe you're here because someone brought you here or dragged you here. Or maybe you're here because you're on a quest because those other gods have been kind of coming empty for you for a little while. And so this morning the call comes to you and, and, and the Lord says to you, listen, I know that you see all these other gods. And you've already given your heart to those other gods, right? You've given your heart to your reputation or to your work or to your business, even to your family or to money or to whatever you think you need to get by and feel secure and safe and healthy in this world. And so God says, listen, I know there's all these other gods, but what I'm telling you is this, just like the Egyptian gods couldn't save them, your gods, the gods of this culture can't save you. They can't save you. There's no salvation found, no rescue found in money. No rescue, no salvation found in people's approval of you. No rescue, no salvation found in you being in control of everything you could possibly be in control of. There is no salvation, no freedom, only death is in those places. There is one God that can save you. And he put on flesh and gave up his life to save your life. There's only one God that can rescue you. And he has come. And salvation has already been poured out for you. The rescue has already been enacted. Nothing you need to do about it. No way you can earn it. You just receive it gladly with grace. The rescue has already been made available to you by the death of Jesus Christ. And so my friends, if you're here this morning, and this is not really how you roll. This, you're not really a God person, not really a Jesus person. Do you need to leave these other gods? The gods of money or success or status or people's approval or your politics. And follow the God who saves. No other gods before him. Today. Do you need to make a decision to say yes to this God and to walk in his salvation and to put behind the other gods? There are so many of them, so many things pull on us in so many different ways. Are you willing this morning to say, hey, those gods can't save? I'm seeing that. I recognize that. I'm following the God who does. Now, on the other hand, some of us, we've been in church for a long time. And especially here in the South, here's what happens for many of us. We got God, we like God, God's cool. We like God, but we also like a little bit of God around him, like other gods too, right? We got, we've got our own like pantheon of gods. We're like, I want a little bit of Jesus or a lot of Jesus, but then I also want these other things to make sure I'm covering my bases, make sure I'm okay. And God says to you, listen, I'm not going to share the throne with anybody or anything else. I'm not going to share any throne. I'm not going to share the throne of your heart with any other God. There's only one God that can save. Every other God only will let you down or enslave you or entrap you deeper and deeper into your losses. Only one God has set us all free. And so the work that we have to do for those of us who are God people, especially here in the South, because it's so culturally okay to be a Christian for so many of us, is to be aware of the fact that there's God and then we try to cobble together other gods alongside Jesus. And, and the Lord comes to us and says, those things have to go away. And so if you're a God person, if you're a following Jesus person, here's what we have to do on the regular. We have to demote every other God or get rid of it entirely. Because there's all these other gods that we want to put alongside God, right? So listen, here's the deal. Money is a terrible God. Money makes for a nice pet and a terrible God. It's nice, right? It's cute. If you can look at your money and say, that's cute. And you know what? Here's the deal. I'm going to give some of that away. I'm going to share some cuteness. That's when you know you're not a slave to money. That's when you know money's not a God. 
Money makes for a great pet and a terrible master. And if you can give it away, it's what sets you free. Oh, my friends, please, if you're following Jesus, give some money away. Jesus talked about money so much because it's the biggest competitor for your heart and for your values. It's the biggest competitor. Find some way to give money away so that you are not enslaved to money. People's approval of you, people liking you, people loving you. Nice pet, terrible master, demote it, not a god. Don't bend yourself over and backwards trying to get people's approval to like you. Remove that. Put the God of the universe at the center of the universe. Receive his applause. Receive his approval. Receive his grace and his love over you. He delights over you. Rest in that. Put those other things off to the side. Other people's approval. You don't need it for you to be valuable, worthwhile, essential. Control. Terrible God. You don't need to be in control for you to be safe. God's got you. Can you release control? Demote control from a God who competes for your affection to a thing that's nice to have. You can, you can use it in wise places to put boundaries in place and bless those and serve those who you can, but you don't need it to be healthy or good. This is so tricky because those gods can kind of sneak up on us. And so the work we have to do on the regular, for those of us who are Jesus people, is we have to regularly demote these other gods that kind of vie for the affections of our heart and our attention. And so... The command, you shall have no other gods before me or beside me or alongside me. It's true for the people of Israel that are coming out of Egypt. It's true for you and me too, no matter where you are spiritually. There's an invitation for all of us to put this God at the center of our lives. And as we move to communion here in just a minute, I want to invite everyone to do a little soul work on this. If you're here this morning and you haven't really made a decision to follow this God, if you're here this morning, you're trying to find salvation, meaning, purpose, significance, value, and some other God, some other place. I understand that. I get it. But I'm telling you, there's no salvation in those places. There's a God who has saved you already. He's put on flesh. The God of Abram, God of Moses. His name is Jesus. He has come to rescue us. That salvation is here and available to you. I invite you to make that decision today for the first time or for the first time in a long time. And then for those of us who are Jesus people. We, it's so easy for us to have God and then other things kind of come up there. That God space gets really crowded really quickly, just like it did for the Egyptians. And so we, we, every so often we have to clean the decks, clear the decks and say, I need to demote that God. I need to remove that God. Or I need to get rid of that God entirely that I might have no other God before the God who has saved me. Because here's what happens. The rest of the Old Testament shows us that the people of Israel are going to struggle with this. They're going to put other gods before God all the time, regularly, and up and down. And the, and the whole thing's going to turn sideways and upside down. And there's going to be a lot of heartbreaking stories for the rest of the Old Testament as the people struggle to keep God at the center of their, fam of their, of their community and of their national life. But what we're going to see throughout the Old Testament is the same God that made promises to Abram 500 years before he gave him the, the commandments. 500 years before he said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make sure you're okay. I'm going to make sure that through you all nations are going to be blessed. That God's going to be faithful age to age until one day in a little town called Bethlehem. Someone's going to be born out of Abram's family. Through him, all the nations are going to be blessed. And we're invited this morning to walk in that blessing, to receive that blessing, to receive that salvation that has come, the love that has come, and then to walk in the commandments of the God who made us and love us. Today's wildly important take-homes, age to age, salvation comes first, commands come after. Super important to keep that order in place and in line and kind of in the order of operations, super, super, uh, super easy to mix those up. So the question is, are you mixing that order up either for yourself or for other 
people. You mix those up and you get really legalistic either for yourself and you get, get suffocated by the rules and the laws and all that kind of stuff. Or if you mix it up for other people, you start assuming or kind of putting on the rules of God's house onto people that don't know that God is good yet. And so that becomes, uh, you, you become sort of someone who is sort of walking around judging everyone around you rather than telling them the good news, salvation has come, love has come, come and see the God who made us and created us. You shall have no other gods before me. That's Israel's prime directive. It's ours as well after salvation, after we've received that good news, after we've walked in that grace and that love. And so the question is, do you need to leave other gods behind to follow the God who saves with no other gods before him? Is that where you are today spiritually? Do you need to make that decision today to leave other gods behind and to walk in the love of the God who has saved you? And then if you're following Jesus here today already, do you need to do a little inventory? What are the other gods? All of us are tempted to sort of chase after some of these other gods. What are the other gods that you're tempted to chase after? What are the things that draw your heart, that vie for your affections and draw and, and, and your attention? Do you need to demote some other gods or get rid of it entirely? Just realize, you know what, this is just, I'm, I'm just twisted up and caught up in this thing. That's not healthy, not good for me. Because as we gather around this communion table... As we gather on this communion table, here's what happened. Jesus is going to come to you. Jesus comes to us with nail-scarred hands. His hands are scarred forever and ever into eternity. When he was raised from the dead, he has a resurrected body that still has a nail-scarred hands. And he says, I did this for you. I shed my blood. I gave up my body to forgive your sins, to rescue you from sin and death forever. Salvation has already come. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work for it. You just receive, in it, receive it and walk in it. And yeah, there's the rules of the house, and I want to show you how to live in line with God's design and God's intention. I want to show you what it means to be a part of my family and to, to live that out. But my friends, the grace and mercy is here. No other God can save but the one who has laid down his life for you and for me. And that's what we celebrate today as we go through our time of communion. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. Then he took the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you, poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. So today we join with Christians all over the globe who've done this for thousands of years, remembering, eating, drinking, celebrating the God who saves, the God who poured out salvation and rescue for us. This morning, as we move to our time of communion, just a couple of things, some logistics. There's three stations, two in the front, one in the back. The cup is grape juice, the bread is gluten-free, so you can, everyone's invited to the table. If you're at home, we invite you to get whatever elements you've got on hand and just join us here in a little bit. We invite you to get the elements and go back to your seats. If you have proclaimed faith in Jesus to some body of believers somewhere, we invite you to share in this meal with us. If you're not yet a Jesus person, not yet a Christian, we're so glad you're here. We just ask you to pass on this and we ask you to consider what's on offer. Salvation has already come. Rescue has already been secured by the blood of Jesus, the body of Jesus. Come and see now this morning. If you want to make that decision, the prayer room is open right over there to my left, your right. The prayer team is there to pray for you and with you. If you need anything, if you need help demoting a God, you know you're wrestling with something. You know you've got something in your heart and your life that you love and that you are maybe love as much or more than God. And maybe you see some help, someone to pray over you to kind of help you to be free, to demote that God and set you free or uproot it entirely. Or if you're here this morning and you're ready, you know what, I'm not a Christian, but I need to make that decision. The prayer team is available for you right through there. We'd be glad to pray with you. If there's anything else you got going on, family stuff, marriage stuff, 
uh, physical health, money stuff, job stuff, anything else you need prayer for, the prayer team is there for you. We invite you, as we move to a time of communion, to go and get some prayer. Again, grab the elements, bring them back to your seats, and we'll eat and drink together. Let's pray as we move to our time of communion. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your salvation that's here. And we ask now that you would use these elements to awaken our hearts and to help us to receive the salvation that is present and available for us. No, nothing we do to earn this. You give it to us by your grace. So come Holy Spirit, we pray that you would use these elements now to awaken us spiritually. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.